0: The word yoga, as most of you doubtless know, junction, yoke, union, all these words are basically from the same root. And so likewise, when Jesus said, my yoke is easy, he was saying, really, my yoke is easy. You are listening to the
1: Yoga for the
0: Yoga Podcast podcast.
1: Hello, Sue. Thank you for joining me on this podcast. How are Hi, you right? feeling today?
2: Hi, I'm great. Awesome. I just took a deep breath. <sighs>
1: <sighs> well, I'm very happy to have you. Um, you are the owner and founder of Unity Yoga Tea House. Mm-hmm. How long have you been uh, the owner?
2: Well, Leo, this is my 10th year which is as much of a shock to me as it is to anyone else that I've been there serving that community for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And so I opened um, on Canada Day in
1: 2006.
2: Wow. Was that intentional
1: to choose Canada Day?
2: Um, Not so much, actually. That just happened to be when the ceiling was finished and the floor was down and I was ready. And I had a teaching staff of two and we went to it. Yeah.
1: Teaching staff of two. Are yeah. they still with you? Those two?
2: Um, well, this one is. I'm still there. I'm the only one that's endured for the full decade. Yeah. Um, but there are a few still with me that have been there eight, eight, seven, eight years. Great. Yeah. Yeah.
1: What was your? I want to know like the initial spark of when you opened that studio. Mm.
2: Um,
1: like, what was the inspiration? What was the whole vision like before it even opened? Oh.
2: I thought you'd ask me that. (laughs) It's actually a little bit of a sad story because I opened it the year after my father passed away. Mm. So um, it was um, quite a transitional year for me. It was my 28th uh, year, 28th birthday. Um, And my father had died from a a severe brain tumor, a geoblastoma multiform in his occipital region of his brain. And he was diagnosed with it and um, was given six months to live. And he lived eight so we had this kind of, uh, very spiritual experience as my dad was passing, sort of like being on death row. Someone tells you you're going to die and all, and all you can think about is I'm going to die.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And, um, all his friends came to the house and pretty much everyone he knew through his life came to say goodbye to him. And I, I just observed as his daughter, I sat there with him through most of that process and It was really heart-wrenching and really hard for me, especially at a time in my life where I was a little bit self-indulgent. I'd finished my business degree. I was working at a fancy job downtown. I was in a gold mining, um, job and I was doing very well, um, for myself. And I was, um, you know, to be perfectly honest, a little resentful from the interruption from my own, like self-interested life Mm -hmm. at the time. And, um, he died at home, which is fairly unusual um, but, um, quite close with my family and we just decided to have him at home. And when he passed, I actually had a very profound experience, um, when his spirit left his body and I sort of felt his spirit come into the room and I felt that the door needed to open. And I remember opening the door to the sun deck and looking up at the sky and it was dusk and the sky lit up with this beautiful yellow glow. And then I saw all the light in the sky move into the sun and the sunset and it was about eight o'clock and... I'd never seen anything like that before. And I think before that I was, you know, non-spiritual. My father was an atheist. Mm-hmm. So the irony of him, uh, manifesting a tumor right in Bindu, which is the spiritual center at the back of the brain is kind of like, um, yeah, interesting. It mm-hmm. was very interesting. And for me, you know, a lot of medical science, he was a chemist. And so he had spent a lot of time in his, um, working on his PhD. He, he, I used to wash the chem lab down with benzene, and so uh, the benzene I guess uh, sinks in and, and does cause cancer in the long run they don 't use it anymore in labs, but I see so there was a scientific explanation for what had happened, but it didn't really sit with me it wasn't quite't um, it, it wasn 't quite right. I knew my father my whole life, and mm-hmm. I sort of knew um, you know he was very atheistic he didn't believe in God, he wasn 't very spiritual, he was a very practical man. I believed when we died, we turned to dirt and that was it, (laughs) you know, it was, um, so it was for me very profound and I'll never forget that day because I think it was that moment that I realized that there was more to life than just my own experience of it and what was happening. And I think that was my first inkling into energy and what energy feels like. Um, and since then I've had a whole other kind of conversation with energy and spirit, which has been very powerful. So Yeah. So that's, I guess, how I began. And it was the following year that I opened my yoga center. Yeah. So, and my job actually let me go with a sizable severance, which was just lucky, I think. And um, I opened Unity Yoga Free and Clear, and offered Mm -hmm. yoga for free for the first couple months. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: It seemed like it was uh, very, like it was synchronistic in a sense um, that... That interruption, Mm -hmm. quote-unquote, seemed like a doorway into a new pathway into your life. And now you're exploring the spiritual path in very deep ways in so many different modalities. Yeah, And uh, it's allowed you to open up this studio on Commercial Drive, which has been Mm -hmm. around for 10 years and serving so many people, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's served me as well. You know, I think it's anything that you do for a decade, anything that you persevere in for this length of time, um, you grow and you learn and you change. And so persevering has been really an interesting way to learn about myself while mm-hmm. I'm learning about uh, community and learning about all the other things that come with, um, running a small business and teaching yoga. And I mean, the list goes on and on, all the things I've learned and those things are invaluable to me yeah. now, but, um, you know, much more valuable than maybe, my bank account escalating year after year in my (laughs) gold mining career. Although sometimes I wonder Uh (laughs) like, Hmm.
1: What would it have been like if,
2: what would it have been like if I had stayed there? And I think, you know, I think, um, well-being and wellness is, um, really valuable Mm. to me. So yeah, I think we all have different values, but one of the things that I learned, I think through that experience of watching my father pass away the way he did is that, Sometimes we have a limited time on this earth and uh, when we do pass, we want to know that we did something that we feel passionate about and that we feel was rewarding and worth doing. So Mm -hmm. mm -hmm, I feel unity yoga has definitely been that.
1: Yeah. Hmm. Well, I had a chance to uh, experience a little bit of uh, my own mortality and had a bike accident on Wednesday and fell off my bike and hit hit a trailer with my shoulder. Like nothing serious happened, but it was the sort of wake up call to like my own uh, time on this earth too. That's yeah. very precious, my body, yeah. uh, the life that I live and what I do here. So um, I think that's a really good approach in, in seeing like what, what do we value in life, right? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Mm. And I mean, how do we enjoy life to the fullest? I mean, even if we are suffering illness, sickness or injury, which is quite often the state of being that most of us experience at some point or another, how can we enjoy life the most and i think that's that's something that i look for um in my own life i think mm-hmm. how can i how can i enjoy this how can i make life worth living and worth enjoying every breath worth mm-hmm. doing mm-hmm.
1: yeah you were talking about uh, perseverance in in owning and running your yoga studio i want to pull back just a little bit because i definitely have questions about um all of that but i want to know like when you open the studio uh what was the vision? Cause now you're 10 years forward. Oh, mm-hmm. <clears throat> Did you feel like the vision, uh, that you held in the beginning has continued to move forward or has it shifted and changed over the years?
2: You know, it's interesting that you asked me that because I was just working today on a vision statement, a mission statement for unity retreats. And, um, taking a look at that in review, it really does parallel what I had when I opened. When I first opened, my vision was to create an inclusive space for community to, you know, despite ethical uh, differences or cultural differences, that we all could come together in um, shared values and um, shared vision. So I think that those things have really carried, and I think that's maybe the only thing that has stayed uh, the same throughout my time there is that I really have been... um, totally committed to providing space for all different kinds of practices, all different kinds of people and all different kinds of things that people do together. And I remember saying when I first opened, as long as the community comes in here and uses it, I will stay. Hmm. I sort of regret those words. Sometimes I'm like, what am I talking about? Why did I say that? But you know, the community has really come in and used the space and created their own um, expression of what it is for them. And that's not necessarily by my directive. That's just something that is organic and exists without me um, doing anything with it. And that was really amazing. You know, it's like having a beautiful tree grow in front of you. And I really prune it um, and keep it well uh, looked after. And I water it. (laughs) I water it. But but it really does have its own um, way of growing. And and watching it has been... um, yeah, a huge blessing. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. So. What would you say is unique to your particular studio?
2: Um, I think that, um, you know, I, when I first set it up, I was a little disappointed because when I rented the space, it was two rooms and I came in with a vision of having a really big yoga studio. Um, the yoga studio I was practicing in at the time was quite big and quite beautiful with a beautiful view and I had envisioned having a large practice area. Mm. And I spoke to the landlord about it and they were adamant of keeping it separate. There had been, um, an office in there and I had to go through some rezoning and I was sort of disappointed about the rooms being separate and I was giving up on it. And I went home and i had had some trouble with the city. Um, and I went home and I had a dream and actually I saw in my dream, I saw these Uh, I saw the lamps. There's like these silk lamps that I hung in the corner. I saw them in my dream. They came to me later, which was odd. And um, I just felt that that room in the front area in the north side was really meant for um, connecting, community building, and uh, conversation. And that there wasn't a lot of that in my other yoga experiences, that there had been a lot of asana, there'd been a lot of um, exercise, there'd been a lot of um, silence even, Mm -hmm. um, but not a lot of room for dialogue or for feedback. And actually during the period that my father had died, I was participating in a yoga studio and I felt, um, I took an injury during that time, which still sometimes, um, I can still feel it in my body as they are, as you age, sometimes the, they linger. Um, and I remember feeling that when my father died, I really didn't have anyone to talk to. And that my yoga community maybe was not as accessible to me for that as it was for, um, you know, a really strict Ashtanga practice, which at the time maybe wasn't my therapy, wasn't what I needed for my practice. I didn't need strictness in my life. I was already in a very disciplined environment for most of the day. So I think that looking for the softer side of yoga mm. was what I tried to create there. And the tea room came out of that. Um, place where, I mean, what do we do when we're having tea? We're, you know, a lot of times we're having a moment to think more deeply or to have a moment to tune into our own philosophies of life. And so to sit down and have a cup of tea actually for me became a yoga practice. And that was something that was important to me to recognize as a practice. So you don't have to do Prasarita A, B, and C in that order, and D sometimes, (laughs) or, you know, you don't have to do all those things. You can sit down and have a cup of tea and a moment of peace, Mm -hmm. and this is yoga. So I think it was also to give permission to myself and to the greater community to understand that yoga is multifaceted. It doesn't have to be always asana, um, but that it's a place where we find peace and contentment and connection and connection to ourselves or connection to other people is also a part of yoga, hmm. you know? So I, I think of the lonely yogi sometimes that I, um, may have become living in the city, working my corporate job, um, going to big studios and working on my vain <laughs> self-expression, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I totally yeah. hear you. Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that, uh, human connection, peace, and balance are all things that are universal to everybody. And those are all things that we yeah. all want in our life. Yeah. And that you've taken the environment and the space and and cultivated that. Yoga itself generally brings that into our lives. But now mm-hmm. you've really considered how do I shape the space? And I think you've done that really well with unity because... When I walk into that tea house, it's incredibly inviting. Like, there's so Thank many you. things that can stimulate my heart and my mind mm-hmm. and my body when I just walk in. At first, you go in and grab tea, and it's just the, the
2: tea room is very yin. Oh, I mean, women very, come in there yeah. and they sit down with their tea and they get their book, and <laughs> you know, they look at the crystals and yeah, the jewelry. Totally. And, you know, yeah. I mean, it's very yin, yes. that, that tea room. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And me being very yang, like, that's a very balancing thing for me. Mm-hmm. Like, I walk in, I'm like, oh, okay. Everything just slowed down. Mm-hmm. I grab the tea that's just like perfectly brewed. It's not just any cup of tea, no right, <laughs> and it's, it's it's already served for you like you just you just get it from the your mama yeah <laughs> from the pot that's already been made right <laughs> totally. and and totally. you know usually like you your have mama's a, house. yes, yeah, and you have a Yin. reason for why you brewed this tea because of this you know Intention. season and yeah mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's very intentional, and then there's it this is. beautiful glass table that everyone can sit around. And there's so many uh, conversation pieces in that room.
2: There are.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: And it is ironic that you've chosen that space to be your uh, sort of lounge room rather than that being the yoga space, because it is, I would say... That was say, a question in the beginning. Yeah. Totally. It's about two two times the size of the actual yoga space. No,
2: it's not. They're the same size. Same exactly. size? Really? I know. You wouldn't believe it. Everyone, Everyone's always surprised to hear that. Uh-huh. They're exactly Perhaps? the same square footage.
1: Wow. Well, it could be the lighting, but... Either way, I feel like the room on the other side mm-hmm. uh, serves its purpose because it's it's, it, yang. it's very separate. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, when you do walk in, it's like, okay.
2: It's light I, and sunny.
1: I see people just sitting and meditating. They're mm-hmm. being very uh, okay with that because they know they also have a space where they can chat and, and converse and dialogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also like the fact that it is a small room because yeah. it uh, fosters intimacy. Yeah. Which is very important to me in the practice, yeah. not feeling lost in, in in a room that's really big with with other yogis inside of it, mm-hmm. yeah,
2: well, the city can be very big, and we can get a little lost in the city, and so I do like that feeling of coming together in a, a smaller group practice um, mm-hmm. because you can just recognize as you practice that there are others like you that um, you know share space, and I do think that the yoga room is mostly Yang. You know, we do a lot of movement, handstands, we use the wall. I -hmm. mean, it's bright. It's got a lot of, um, activity. That's where the work happens actually in the South side. And I put the yoga studio there because it was in the South and South is utmost Yang. So whenever we talk about Yang and Yin, I'm Taoist. So the Yin is always cool, dark, Mm -hmm. more quiet. Mm -hmm. And the Yang is always bright, active, Mm -hmm. um, sweat, yeah. Energy expression, but there's always a little yang in the yin, uh, and there's always a little yin in the yang. So mm-hmm. there's always a bit of meditation in the yoga room, and there's always a little bit of active conversation <laughs> in the tea room. So, yeah. in some ways, I think they balance. Yeah, yeah totally.
1: Yeah. yeah, I like the fact that I'm one mat away from the teacher. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I can always see you, and you can always see me. And I'm also one mat away from all the other students across the room, and the ones to my side, too. Mm-hmm. So it feels very communal. Yeah, And uh, it has the impression of it being small. So it's like a container where a lot of the work is done. And walking into the tea room, there's an impression of openness, even though, as you say, they're the same size. Mm-hmm. I, I really don't feel, that energetically, that I really doing. don't feel that. Interesting. Uh, and yeah, that's just my, my
2: Yeah, a lot of people feeling. say that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, in the yoga room, there is a position for the leader of the group. Um, in the center of the room. And so, you know, the group is, is very led, very held. And I think that that can be good and can be not so good, depending on what you're looking for in a practice. Um, I think there's also a conversation that happens in that room. So it's not just a one directional guidance. I think Mm -hmm. that a lot of times the leader of the group is often also like receiving a lot of information as we practice together. So I know for me personally, I, I really receive a lot from my students, and that's how I that's how I carve out the practice. And if they're not if they're not giving me anything, then I I have a harder time creating something in in that space. And yeah. so you'll feel that too. And there's people depending on the group. I always say that you know the group makes the practice. Yes. The people in the room will make the practice that day. Yeah. And it's not the teacher that makes the practice; it's the it's the group that makes the practice. And so that's a little different too. Uh-huh. You know, because in a big in a big environment or like a big room full of uh, yogis that are practicing, even in a synchronized way, the leader will make the practice. The teacher will make it what it is. Um, and I think that's why small groups are a bit different. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Mm-hmm. another form of yoga even yeah
1: and i feel like you've cultivated the culture where it's very okay to speak out about what you want in the practice yeah. uh you of know of course you you've openly <laughs> asked what do you want to do yeah. today what does your body need Oh may i see you can i take your and, order
0: and they're take your order
1: and they're really uh unapologetic about saying i want this and i don't want this mm-hmm, though mm-hmm. and uh I, I really like that
2: and some yogis say anything is fine yeah. i'm happy to be here
1: yeah Right. Mm -hmm. So I really do get the sense of it's a, it's a group activity coming together to, to work as a group with strong leadership. Yes. And guidance. Mm -hmm.
2: Leadership's Mm -hmm. important.
1: Tell me a little bit about leadership because I feel like that's one key quality in your longevity in the 10 years.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think there's been a lot of, um, I've been approached by people who have had opinions about how yoga studio should be run. And I'm really, really adamant about, uh, one leader taking the position of, of the leader, because especially in a yoga community, because a yoga business, maybe not necessarily in a yoga community, but in a yoga business, um, you know, having to manage by consensus, uh, slows things down to the point where you actually can't function where coming to an agreement on every small issue would actually create such inefficiency in the process that nothing would happen. And so one of the things I think that has been really good about Unity Yoga is that I've managed it and I've run it and I've I've directed it, even though there's a lot of leaders on my team. In fact, some of the leaders on my team are stronger leaders than myself, which is fine, but that there's always one... uh, one person who has the power to just say, yay, nay, forward. Yes, no, for better, for worse, forward. Yes, I'm right. No, I'm not right. Forward. And so I think that that quality in community is really interesting. I interviewed actually Dea Judith once um, for Drishti Point, and that was a question I asked her. It was about uh, five years ago or something. I was in the middle of, of running the studio, and I was having hesitation because someone said to me, you should be running a cooperative space, What are you thinking? You know, or you should be uh, running a nonprofit. What are you thinking? My, you know, my mother was like, you're running a charity. What are you doing? (laughs) You know, and um, I think that all those things uh, affected me. And so when I asked Anadea Judith what she thought, she said, she said, no, she said that the structure of having one leader in a smaller community is extremely important to keeping the community vibrant, healthy, and strong. So that, you know, if something happens whereby someone is incongruent with the community, they come up against one single point of leadership and they either work with that leadership or they don't and then onward. And I don't know, I think leadership takes, um, leadership takes strength and discipline and humility and grace and a lot of things and spiritual leadership takes even more things and I think feel really proud to say that I've been able to manage and run a, a community that's based on spirituality and connectivity and collaborativeness and all those uh, great community values because mm-hmm. I don't think it's easy to do that. It's not easy. It hasn't been easy. mm mm-hmm. I'm trying to make it look easy though. Don't tell everybody that's hard <laughs> right, though. Right. Yeah, It's actually really uh, easy. <laughs> you know, I think more and more, more and more people are trying it and finding that it's not easy, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: but it seems like it's worthwhile. Yes. Yeah.
2: Anything that's worth anything, anything that's not easy is worthwhile in some respects, I suppose, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it's not for everyone either. True. That's the point I guess I'm trying to get to is that it, it's not for everybody, you know, spiritual practice isn't for everybody. Spiritual leadership isn't for everybody. And I think sometimes when we don't know ourselves very well, we think it might be for us. And then it comes to the point where we have to sacrifice something else that we really value. And then we realize that actually these aren't our values, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah.
1: Have you always been in a general sense, a leader? And also on top of that, you, you, differentiate the difference between a business leader and a spiritual leader i think they Mm -hmm. also come together at in some point too Mm -hmm. i haven't actually heard the term uh you know spiritual leader i think that's really interesting Mm. um can you elaborate a little bit more on that
2: yeah i think uh the term i've used is um um a socially conscious entrepreneur because Mm -hmm. i think that um I think that business is not necessarily driven um, by the things we value as spiritual teachers or spiritual practitioners. Um, Not that it can't be, but that they maybe aren't always congruous. So when we approach a business with a spiritual mindset, um, we don't have the same uh, profit maximization objectives as a large organization that might be trying to um, you know, look after their shareholders. Um, you know, my business degree taught me a lot of things about, um, profit maximization as <laughs> you know, Leo knows. Yeah. Um, and I don't know that I could have run a yoga studio successfully without, uh, a business degree. <laughs> Can I say that? I think that's actually funny. Um, because, uh, you have to be quite good at business to make the business, to make the yoga business model function. Um, you know, there's a fixed price usually for, a uh, practice class and, um, you know, you definitely have to compete on costs and as the yogi practices, um, needing less, doing less and simplifying, then it really has its own teaching. There it is, you know, mm-hmm. you simplify and, um, you reduce what you need. And I think then there's enough, but I mean, Vancouver, uh, rents are very high and, you know, renting space for spiritual practice. Yeah, maybe it would be better under a different tax law. You know, than what I have it under. But actually, as it is, it's um, it's been successful, anyways. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And so, when you speak of spiritual leadership, you're speaking of really holding on to your own principles about why you've opened mm-hmm. the studio. And not yeah. compromising it for necessarily growing the business that's right. in ways that don't align with that.
2: That's right. Integrity. Mm-hmm. I think doing something with integrity and doing something with um, loyalty and appreciation and that each step, each decision is done mindfully um, is a spiritual practice. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and not all businesses are run that way. Yeah. And not... and success, success, or like conventional success isn't always found that way either. You see a lot of people who don't have any integrity, um, becoming very wealthy, and very successful. So, you know, there's all kinds of scams. I mean, I can think of all kinds of examples, pyramid scams, for example, you know, that have no integrity um, whatsoever, and people become very wealthy on them. And they, you know, they think they're doing something spiritual. But in fact, actually, when you take a look at it, mm, you know, it offends some of the some of the ethical codes of what we're doing as as yogis and calling ourselves yogis so mm. yeah that's another whole hour conversation <laughs> i think we started there well, yeah the in terms business.
1: of um the things that sh- which you didn't compromise what were some some points within the 10 years where you had to make decisions uh let's say we were gonna you know put spirit and, and business in a in a boxing ring what what, what were those moments where you had to uh, make that tough decision.
2: Um, one of my best yoga teachers who's been with me nine years, um, isn't RYT certified. So she's served this community. She's taught weekly classes. She's been an outstanding member. She's a Buddhist chaplain, but she doesn't have her RYT 200. Mm um, you know, something like that. Um, I think also, you know, people coming into the space who are incredibly charismatic, I call them yoga divas, <laughs> you know, they come in, they've got all kinds of students coming in and they clearly have, uh, a financial benefit to the space. Mm-hmm. Um, but they don't know how to send in an invoice on time or don't respect, uh, the kind of work that it takes to provide a space or don't have a don't have a healthy respect for me and the job that I'm doing or a generosity of spirit to, um, those around them who are in support roles. You know, I would say that, um, they aren't worth having, you know, mm. I have a no diva rule at <laughs> unity yoga. <laughs>
1: what about for the men? What what are we called uh, yoga, yoga princes or
2: the men yeah. oh no they're still divas men can be divas oh, oh okay. absolutely right. men can be divas Well, i thought diva you know. was
1: like a like a, a like a term
2: for for define diva okay yeah. um diva is just you know someone who comes in and who has um a narcissistic attitude mm-hmm. about what they're doing and yeah. that what they're doing is the most important thing that anyone can be doing around them at any moment yeah And, um, and that they're driven to succeed based on their own objectives only Mm. and that they fail to recognize other people's, uh, needs or, or, um, you know, uh, yeah, I think narcissism Mm. is the word that comes to mind where they're so excited about themselves and what they're doing that they, they forget that other people have things that are Mm. happening and yeah.
1: You really want to cultivate a team. It sounds like.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. We are a team. However, we're all individuals representing ourselves. And that's fine. I think um, what happens is when uh, we come to a place where there isn't a healthy balance of give and take, and I think that's what it is, is that I think some people come to a place where they feel because they may have um, legitimately brought more money to the space, Mm -hmm. that that is a source of power, um, whereas money is maybe not always what motivates everyone. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, uh, not everyone cares about how much money you have. Yeah. So even if you can attract a big clientele and they're all paying a lot of money, it doesn't mean that, um, you're necessarily right for our spiritual ground. Mm. So I think that, you know, making sure that we prioritize integrity over greed
1: Hmm. Yeah. Hmm, interesting. Anything else along the path?
2: Um, I think, uh, in regards to my personal relationships, I think I've hired about a hundred yoga teachers. I've Ooh. given a lot of yoga teachers in Vancouver, their very first start. Wow. Um, not naming any names, but mm-hmm. I've, I've, you know, I've, I call, I've said I don't like being the lily pad, you know, that sort of gets like jumped over, you know, on a, on an ambitious teacher's, uh, uh, striving toward fame and glory, Mm -hmm. right? They're on this path for wealth and fame Mm -hmm. and they want it. And that's okay to want that. It's just, um, I think that when we talk about spiritual practice, when that becomes more of a priority than the healthiness or the healthy functioning of the community, then we're misled. Mm. And so as a practice, I think that in order for people to lead community in my space, at least if I have a say in it, um, that their values will be, uh, more in line with the values of integrity and community needs and altruism and goodness and, uh, doing noble work and that this is the path hmm. and, um, you know, earning money is, is important and we all need it, but it might not be the most important thing. And it's definitely not, the most important thing when it comes to our, our practice. Yeah.
1: Sign me up for all of that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's, it's a hard one. Yeah.
2: And, you know, especially when you're running a yoga studio, it's a hard mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I definitely acknowledge you for being able to sustain your business for this long yeah. and uh, really holding true to what you think uh, is going to benefit the community. Cause certainly over the years, I've taught at a lot of places, and I yeah. could count uh, on my hand ten different studios I've worked with that have either changed hands or gone under. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for various reasons.
2: They uh, didn't have a business degree. That's, probably <laughs> <laughs> that's really the first yeah. reason. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's possible, right? Yeah. Uh, I I don't I don't even know all the reasons, right? No. I just see that that's a reoccurring pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you've outlined a lot of your own personal. Yeah, um, it's not an easy success. Role. Yeah, it's not yeah. an easy role either. Um, would you say there's certain key um, key factors that have kept you there thriving, thriving mm-hmm. even on a practical level, like the cost and price of, of memberships or yeah, you those know, things. Maybe mm-hmm. um, you know how you communicate with teachers. What, mm-hmm. what, what could you say?
2: Um, I think it also comes back to partnerships and how partnerships work. And I've always, uh, really believed that partnerships are between two people. So my contracts are always between me and one other person, mm. you know, and as much as we are a team, we're, we're all just a group of partners and each relationship has its own dynamic and managing those dynamics is what I do. And I think that, um, uh, I think that that is what it is. And I think also having the freedom to do what it is that we want to do has been really important. Like I, um, I don't tell teachers what to teach or how to teach it. I think that we all have our own um, capacities, our own strengths, and to just let people find their strengths. And I'm always a firm believer that people will be self, uh, reflective and self-correcting. And I think it's because I am not everybody is self correct. (laughs) (laughs) Not everybody out there can, um, can self correct or is self aware. And Mm -hmm. I think that, um, you know, it's, it's actually not for me to criticize or to, um, shape anyone else's direction in what they're doing. Um, although I think there are teachers out there that do that very well. It's not, that's not my job. So I think sometimes just knowing what my job is and knowing myself really well is what I come back to. And I think, um, is that my job? That's what I say to myself. Is that my job?
1: Mm. Because it's very easy to play a lot of different roles as the owner. Yeah. You you could be, you're a yoga teacher. You're also their employer. You may be a therapist at times. You may be also a counselor or, uh, you know, yoga teacher, trainer, advisor about what to teach.
2: Yeah. Which part is my job? Right. And I think that, you know, your job can change and you can try on different jobs and let them go. And that's how you find out what your job is. But I found that my job is to water the tree. Mm. And so I, I water the tree, trim its branches when it needs trimming. So I'm I maybe the gardener. Yeah. But you know, I'm not, I'm not the guru. I'm not the teacher. I'm not the disciplinarian. Mm -hmm. I'm not the, I'm not the dance critique. I'm not the dance teacher. I'm, I'm, I'm a lot of things that I'm not a lot of things. And so maybe that helps us know what we are. Yeah. So I think it's also just like the perpetual journey towards the self and self-realization and self-knowing and self-acceptance and Um, self-correction, you know, Mm -hmm. when I find myself in a position where I'm, I'm doing something that's not my job, you know, like a very swift self-correction is sometimes needed too. So that's actually been very interesting as well, because when you're a leader, you have to be very careful about, um, how you use your legitimate authority, even though I have a very small amount of authority. I mean, it's not a, a great deal of authority, Mm. but I have a small amount of authority over what happens. And so I think using that appropriately, Is a practice, too. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Interesting.
2: Yeah.
1: And I gather that the health and sustainability of a studio is primarily also the commitment from the students. If the students don't show up, well, (laughs) you can't pay your rent. You can't pay your teachers, right? Those
2: students, why don't they show up? Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. But if your teachers don't show up, why would your students? (laughs) That that too, right? (laughs) And
1: showing up not just physically, but in many different other ways. Right. But mm-hmm. obviously your students have come back again and again, cause they felt like there's, there's been a benefit to their life, right? Yes. What has been crucial for them, uh, in their commitment to your studio? Cause there's also a lot of other studios, mm-hmm. um, you know, they've chosen yours for their reasons. What do you think is, are, are the, are those key factors?
2: Um, I think in general, our studentship is varied. I think that um, what I love about the studentship at Unity Yoga is that they're not just there for one teacher. You know, we all at Unity, we share our students that all of the students go to everybody's classes. And so they're not the type of student that just follow one teacher and that they'll follow that teacher across town or wherever they are because they're enamored with celebrity status of the instructor.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I'm seeing this a lot in the yoga industry whereby people are following a teacher because they've decided that that teacher knows the most or is the best. And I think that's dangerous because I think that's putting a celebrity badge on a yoga teacher, on any yoga teacher, on any human. I think celebrity badges can be dangerous. Even in politics, don't get me started. Yeah. <laughs> I think celebrity badges are dangerous because mm-hmm. that means we're pinning ideas, we're pinning values on something that we don't we don't really know we're pinning values on something that we see on the surface um and i think at unity i really appreciate how our students don't get stuck on teachers that they're coming and they're interested in what all the teachers are offering and also that i think that we do share students with a lot of other communities that we share practitioners of yoga with the world
0: Hmm.
2: and that when we come together at unity we're really just there to practice And that's been um, a vision of mine, is that I want to hold space for people to practice. And it's not necessarily, um, we're not there to have vocational training. We're not there to make money. We're not there to do anything but practice and have a moment where we actually uh, come together, enjoy life. And it's, it's a little bit of a celebration. I always think that Yoga can be joyful and a celebration. It can also be the opposite of that. But I think that the people who come to Unity Yoga are coming for uh, just an ability to spend some time with themselves. And yeah, and it's a nice place to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. And not only have you been growing the studio, I see that you've got your hands in a lot of different interesting modalities as well. Yes. Yeah. Well...
2: (laughs) (laughs) why do we practice leo yeah why do we practice
1: well what's what's got you interested in these these new arts and and uh new ways of looking inwards Mm -hmm.
2: well i i think that my yoga practice is really a foundation for all the other things i do in life and um i do teach yoga because i do believe i'm i'm an artist and i love the creative i love the creative process of of yoga and calisthenics and, um, and I, I, I love stillness practices and I do consider myself an artist, but I'm also an intellectual. And so there is a philosophical hunger, like I'm a truth seeker. Mm. So a lot of times my yoga practice is driven by this seeking of understanding about why we're here, what we're doing, why are we doing this? And, you know, on, on some of the more humorous days, I sort of sit there and I think, what are we doing? (laughs) What are we doing? And I get kind of like this existential moment where I'm like, what are we doing? But then you realize that, um, we're doing something that gives us a clear foundation for other things. So my yoga practice helps my mind be clear and ready for the inquiry of, of around life or, um, The work that needs to be done that day. My yoga practice serves to nourish, restore me, give me strength for the work of the day. Um, I think that right now I see a lot of people going to yoga for vanity. I think that they're, they fall in love with their body because they're like, wow, look, yoga can make my body healthy and beautiful and strong. And they start to get really excited and they, they are doing it for that. And I think that can be a really, um, that can be a stopping point on the path. And you can get off there and you can stay there for quite a long time Mm -hmm. if that's what you choose. And, um, I think that for me, I did have that period where I was delighted with the healthfulness of my body, with the expression of my body and all the things my body can do. I still am. I still regularly get off at that stop, but then you get on, you get on the path again and you think, how does this serve humanity? How does this serve my community? How am I serving others? How am I serving myself? What am I doing this for? And that's where I started to, uh, really start to grow. And I think when we do that as yogis, we're using the practice as inspiration, as, uh, an influence for the other things that are happening in our lives. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, for me, it's been feng shui. It's been, uh, I do this Chinese astrology called, uh, Batsi and I do, uh, Herbalism, medical herbalism, the teas, um, the administrative and managerial no. <laughs> <laughs> burden of running a small business, um, paying the GST—you uh, know, all those things. Um, because those are the things that life is made up of. Life isn't just asana,
1: mm. yeah, and bliss, and yeah,
2: bliss, and yeah, as much as I'd like it to be, yeah. you know, yeah. But I think you know, asana also can be play it can be serious work. It can be therapy. It can be trauma release. It can be your yoga practice can be wherever you are, you Mm -hmm. know, but as we heal and as we become healthy, then we have a tremendous amount of energy and we have a tremendous capacity to offer. Mm -hmm. And so what are you offering? And that's always my question for people when they come and they cultivate a practice and they've done a teacher training and they've done immersions and they're ready to teach yoga. I'm like, yeah, but what are you offering? What are you doing with all this yoga? great, you're doing yoga. Great. You want to teach great. That great. That teaching is your practice. And what are you doing? So what, what are we all doing with our yoga? Mm. That's my question. Mm -hmm. Don't just stop. uh, Don't just get off the bus and stay at Lululemon forever, please. Like, let's actually, let's do something with our practice. And I mean, I think that's also emotionally an emotional maturity, right?
1: Mm.
2: We get into our thirties and (laughs) I don't know. Yeah.
1: And and people value different things as they grow and different ages, yeah, different stages of life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm.
2: And if you have children, that's another that's another stop on your journey, right? That's a long stop because that stop stays with you. But I would I would say your yoga practice is like having a child Hmm. because you are the child in your yoga practice. You know, you get up in the morning and I have to feed me, and I have to get myself out the door, and I have to get myself through my day and. I think the yoga practice is something that we do just like we nurture our own child, mm-hmm. you know, where it's our, it's our lifelong job.
0: Mm.
2: Only nobody should have to pay us for that because it's, it's what we're doing, mm.
0: mm-hmm. you know,
2: but when we start to serve others, I think that there definitely should be an exchange. So, I mean, yoga as a job, yes, yoga is a service job. It's a, it's a very underpaid service job yeah. <laughs> at the moment.
1: Yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, my ideal situation is I wish that I could teach without uh, it having be my source of income. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. yeah.
1: And now now having now taught six years, uh, really coming to terms with that and seeing that as both a benefit because it's created the lifestyle I have, but also a hindrance to um, the quality of my teaching. What is my offering? Yeah. And what is it based off of now?
2: you're at a critical point, Leo. Mm -hmm. The six year mark is a critical point in the profession because as a yoga professional, you face a lot of stigma now around what a yoga professional does, what the expectations are of a yoga professional, um, you know, what you can earn as a professional. And I think that, uh, public perception of yoga teachers right now is a, is definitely an obstacle for teaching professionals such as yourself. And you're at a critical point at six years, you are, you are a skilled professional and, um, you know, being that, I think you are also in a position to create some change around how the public views, uh, you as a professional. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think to empower yourself to, um, uh, you know, create more awareness around what it is to be a yoga professional, I think is a very noble uh, job. And mm-hmm. perhaps that is what your practice will serve you in mm-hmm. is to do that job of developing professionalism and yoga. what does that mean? Yeah. And how do we, how do we create an understanding in the general population of what it takes to be a professional mm-hmm. and, and be a teacher even, I mean, there's all kinds of other problems with teachers being, you know, uh, asked to do a lot of things. And I was recently, I'll just share a short story. I was recently um, invited to participate um, as a yoga teacher uh, in exchange, an unpaid position in in exchange for a ticket to an event. And I'm definitely happy to come and share my love of yoga, my creative process um, in exchange. But uh, they said to me, oh, it's not really fair. You just teach one class in exchange for this ticket. And I thought, well, it's not really fair. You're not paying me. Like, of course you would let me through the gate if I'm coming there, but you're not paying me. Mm -hmm. So I think there's also room for negotiation around what it takes to be a professional and setting those standards Mm -hmm. because so many people want to do it, but how many people are professionals? So I think at six years, you can definitely call yourself a professional and set yourself apart from, from, you know, the newer teachers or people Mm -hmm. who are trying it on as a hobby or people who are teaching free in the park.
1: Yeah, sure. You know, which has been
2: very controversial for myself and some of my yoga studio friends on commercial and people teaching free in the park and who's going to come into a yoga studio in the middle of summer if they can just go to the park and do yoga for free with a new teacher. Mm -hmm. Well, people who value yoga professionals, that's who and they will come in and they will pay Mm -hmm. for a yoga professional to support them in their practice because it's quite different Mm -hmm. than being in a park, having someone with less, fewer years of experience and training guiding them through. So Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: I think there's also a level of uh, education awareness uh, around uh, what yoga students, w- what yoga is possible in terms of the practice because you yeah. come into a studio, you're fostering a practice and a relationship with your teacher mm-hmm. that's very different than uh, going casually to an outdoor yoga class for free. Yes. I mean, you only get what you uh, put in in terms of dollar amounts. This is the value you're putting in because this is your time and effort. Uh, you're going to get back that same amount too. Um, but it does pose challenges for, for us professionals yes. yeah, that really take our work very seriously.
2: But I think that there people have to just start to understand that there's a difference between a first-year graduate in dentistry and someone who has been working on people's teeth for a decade. Mm. There is a huge difference mm-hmm. in the service. And I think that those of us that have established ourselves now as professionals have to really make sure that we are... Um, valuing ourselves Mm -hmm. because I think to try and compete with a first year graduate is really silly. Mm -hmm. It's really not what we're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, I think coaching first year graduates, yes, but comparing or uh, working for the same rates as uh, a first-year graduate is really not uh, not a professional standard. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, yourself and some of the other professionals in this community uh, definitely need to make that known and understood. Mm-hmm. And I try and do that at my studio, you know. I, I do value people that have uh, done the work, especially teaching yoga full-time. It's a very different thing than a casual offering once a week sometimes, maybe. Yeah. Right? And there's a lot of casual yoga teachers that want to teach their friends once a week. Well, that's great, you know. But if you're looking for, you know, If you need professional dentistry, make sure you get a professional dentist. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great analogy. Value your dentists. (laughs) Right? Yes. Well, Mm -hmm.
1: great. I uh, had the opportunity to look through your Chinese astrologer. Uh, I calculated my my years. Oh, nice. Maybe you could give me some insight about, like... (laughs) who am i and like what to do with all this because yeah. i just read them i'm like oh i'm a yin metal rabbit right
2: you're a two gua <laughs> uh,
1: but that came yeah. up twice what does that mean
2: oh oh you're a double rabbit oh that makes sense and then i'm mm-hmm. a
1: yang fire monkey yang fire tiger
2: Ooh, ooh.
0: wow
1: what?
2: well um you know this year is the fire monkey year oh so um it's And if you have that in your day palace, which is, we call your day master. Mm -hmm. So that's the day you're born on. And you can look on my website to see what day you're born on. But if you're born on the day of the fire monkey, that means this year relationship and spouse is very important because it's always the day that indicates the expression of the self. So the year is sort of general. So a lot of people will know their Chinese astrological sign based on their year. Well, it only really governs the first part of your life. So it's sort of like in kindergarten, you were you were a metal rabbit, right? Yeah, sure. Um, and then so as you age, you move into your career house, which is your month, which is also metal rabbit, interestingly. And then as you go into your day palace, um, this is like your inner self. And mm-hmm. then your fourth, your hour is your children. So... Um.
1: Actually, this is the year I was born. Tiger. Oh, I'm a okay. tiger. So oh, okay. So it this is day. Head? Yeah. Okay.
2: So this is year month day hour. So you're born in the day of the yin metal rabbit. Okay. Hmm. So, okay. So then the fire monkey is in your career palace then. Oh. So that means this year is a year for you to work on your career. Mm. It also might mean that you have to work more than one job Ooh. or that you may leave one position mm-hmm. to pursue another. Oh. Job change is usually what's indicated.
1: Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good to know.
2: But, um, that house is also has to do with family and friends.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So it can mean you're moving mm. or you're changing your vocation can also mean check on your mom and dad. Okay. See how they are.
1: Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. I yeah. like that. Okay. I mean, there's
2: all kinds of things you can tell from looking at a chart. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah.
1: And then how would you get into, uh, <laughs> this, all, <laughs> I mean, astrology me. and feng shui, it's, it's a very, big thing you know i know uh like i i read the georgia Strait for like western astrology (laughs) it's like you know it's it's more just of like entertainment for me to just Mm -hmm. something that my girlfriend and i like to do when we're having coffee it's very i think most people
2: share that it's it's more comical right yeah Uh,
1: but i actually am very interested in how it could bring insight into uh, my life and what direction Mm. i can bring like, where do I bring my energy into my career? Is it into my relationships? How can I best, uh, how can I optimize myself in this time of my life? Mm-hmm.
2: What you're asking me about, Leo, is, is flow. And so flow is this understanding that um, life is uh, working through time and time is cyclical. So in the Chinese lunar calendar, every month is identified as uh, an element and so it's based on five element theory, much like Chinese medicine. And so uh, water is always first because water is sort of creation and existential. The droplet of water began mm-hmm. all life. And then from water, we move into wood, which is also the same as air in the Vedic system. So wood and air grows upward. It's an upward moving or a rising energy as in the nature of spring. Um, as wood rises, it burns up into the atmosphere, up into fire. So fire is utmost yang and it's, uh, in the Chinese compass in the South. Um, and then from fire, uh, fire turns to ash and becomes, uh, soil. So soil or earth, uh, falls from fire. Mm. So fire generates earth. And then from earth, earth, as it contracts, creates crystal or metal mm. or ore. And so the more contracted energy we get, the more we get, uh, into a hard states of metal and ether. So, the more contracted we get, the more we actually expand into the ether. And Hmm. so ether and metal are also the same. And then from there, it condenses back to water. And Uh. so space creates a drop. And, uh, so this cycle of five elements is, um, in the lunar calendar, every month has an element, every day has an element, every year has an element, every hour has an element associated with it. And that's how we read astrology charts. So you are born um, a yin metal day master. So yin metal is refined. Um, They're usually very um, astute in their mind. They're usually intellectuals. Um, They're smart, Uh, can be piercing, even critical metal Mm -hmm. cuts. It can be sharp. Um, So, you know, each element has qualities. And what we look at is the day master. So the day that you're born on is yin metal And this year is a fire monkey year, which is Yang fire. So the Yang fire rules metal. So it's a ruling relationship. And anytime we see something ruling uh, a man, it represents their children. And it would be opposite gender. So for you, it represents a daughter.
0: Mm.
2: It also represents your female teachers or um, your your mother. Mm. So um, there are different representations depending on what element uh, comes through the chart. Yeah, so you can kind of... That's how we read elemental flow, it's called. And Uh so each year has an element. Right now we're in fire, monkey. Next year is yin fire. The year after that is yang earth. The year after that is yin earth. So it goes yang, yin, yang, yin, yang, yin. those are the ten stems we refer to them. Mm. Ten stems are just the five elements polarized into yang and yin. Interesting. Yeah, so there's... um, you know, you can, you can look at the calendar for every day. So today, for example, is earth rat. So earth is yang. Uh, rat has uh, got a fixed element of water. So you can even read based on the day that it is today um, what you might do for your activities or what kinds of things might come to you. Uh, certain days have better days for money and luck and some days are void some days and void days are actually my favorite they mean do nothing (laughs) they mean have fun waste your time be an Uh artist um a lot of times artists come to see me for an astrology reading their chart is full of it's full of void stars they're tremendous (laughs) artists yeah you know and they're not producing anything and they're not Mm -hmm. you know and they're often very hard on themselves about not producing anything and it's like well but you're producing something, you're producing beauty. So it might not be practical. Mm-hmm. And the Chinese have all their values, of course, built into the astrological model. So you have to kind of strip away some of the old-fashioned values of the Chinese <laughs> everything. But but underneath it all is a very scientific uh, model based on uh, mapping up the stars mm. and mm-hmm. using uh, the Lo Shu square, which is a nine-grid square, which we lay over a home, which mm. can identify... Um, sectors of the building that are more, um, more, uh, useful to you and then sectors that are less useful. Mm-hmm. So some of my teachers can walk into a home and look at a birth chart and say, Oh, um, I know that you have this problem just because they can see where you're sleeping. They've taken the directions of the home and they can look at your birth date and make a very, uh, quick and accurate diagnosis.
1: Mm. So that's Feng Shui and Feng Shui is then uh related it's a oh, subcategory of yeah. Chinese astrology? Yes.
2: Yeah, so feng shui is the astrology of the home. Mm-hmm. And uh, batsu is the astrology of the person. Ah. And so when we place a person in an environment, um, that's how you read. That's uh, that's how we do it. And so the uh, a different person will have different luck in yeah. different homes. Interesting. And so when people are really hard on their luck, I just say to them, you know what? Move.
1: Uh-huh. Go somewhere it. else. Like, just,
2: <laughs> just move because... You can have completely different luck. You can change your luck entirely by moving, changing your environment, move Mm. cities. Mm. You're really having a bad time in life. Pack your bags and move. Um, Because moving is one of the most powerful things you can do. You change your environment, you change everything.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I know travel for me has been very empowering.
2: Yeah, because you forget your environment. Mm -hmm. You let go. You put yourself into the whim of the world. And I think Mm. that's why the retreat company, actually, that uh, Emily Millen and I are doing is so powerful because when you take people out of their environment they see things totally differently Mm -hmm. put them in an environment where the energy is good and pure Mm -hmm. the land is supporting feed them food surround them with good company and they have insight just Mm -hmm. simply from that yes Yep.
1: and you've selected some very uh optimal places for that. I've been to both mm-hmm. Salt Spring, uh, which I love mm-hmm. and have also been to uh Guatemala, Lake Atitlan. Yes. Which I fell Beautiful in love place. with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I lived there for three months. Yeah. Um studying and, and learning. Nice. So
2: uh Espanol? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <un> poquito. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly a spiritual language. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, when good. I was
1: there. And so like I would love to be go to one of your, which is just for that yeah. element and obviously to also be a part of that experience um tell us a little bit about those two retreats because mm. they're very different one is somewhat local yes and 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 north american what northwest yes uh on an island and another one is like you know very foreign not many people Central have been to Guatemala. Mm-hmm.
2: yeah i think that the local retreats on salt spring island were very blessed with stole lake because stole lake is um in a bowl it actually their property is built around uh and it's very unusual to find something that has that kind of bowl like shape hmm. but it's actually a perfect container hmm. and there's a beautiful yoga studio there and a beautiful community that live on that land and they have maintained it meticulously and in in feng shui we say if it's beautiful it's feng shui <laughs> right it's never feng shui if you have like some jagged edge sticking out on you know in your Banging your shin every day—that's not very feng shui, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you can always say if it's beautiful, it's feng shui. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the beauty of that land has really created a rich place for us to go and retreat and do do the work we're doing. And Guatemala also has a beauty to it, where we're um, uh, sitting looking out over a calm lake. And the armchair embrace in feng shui means that it's like you're sitting in a throne. You've got a good a mountain form on the right and a mountain form on the left and a mountain behind you and a red Phoenix out in front. So we say the green dragon uh, sits on the right and the white tiger on the left, uh, the black tortoise behind and the red Phoenix in front. And these are the celestial signs that you look for. So it's like you're sitting in a throne looking at the Phoenix Mm -hmm. and Guatemala has that looking out over the lake. Uh, Guatemala also has these very, very peaked volcanoes, which are a fire element they're triangular, they're actually active, some of them. And fire and water can sometimes bring conflict. And Guatemala has um, some conflict there between uh, what's happening for them politically. Um, I think that there's a lot of conflict between cultures there. I think there's a lot going on that um, is setting off some steam. When Mm -hmm. we see fire and water clashing, there's Mm -hmm. often steam as a result. Mm -hmm. And so uh, conflict is actually very ripe in Guatemala. Um, So I think that the the work there is to help mitigate or help support that conflict to, uh, be neutralized through our values and our support as yogis. I think we're working on that. Um, we're working on that even with the retreat center there, we're working on that. Um, we're working on that there Mm -hmm. and the land represents that. Mm. So, yeah.
1: Mm. It's interesting when you do have this language of Chinese astrology that, wherever you go and whatever you do, you, you have that framework in which you're yes, looking through that. I am. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you find that tiring at times or do you find that very inspiring and, uh, and it really lights your uh-huh. internal fire?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I have good boundaries around it because sometimes people will also ask me for an astrological reading and I'll read their chart and then I know their chart the so same thing happens to me with people. So they come up to me and my, my brain is doing a background job on their chart. And mm-hmm. I sort of can feel or know or understand what's happening for them in that moment in their lives, which is very powerful. And so having good boundaries around what I do with that information is more what I work on. Mm. Um, the information itself, no, the information itself comes from my conversation with spirit. It's a spiritual practice and it's not hard and it doesn't get in my way. What I do with it is, is more challenging, understanding when to act on it, when to not act on it, when to share it. My boyfriend, for example, <laughs> <laughs> should never have looked at his chart, <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, he asked me sometimes, he says, well, tell me what you think. And I'll, I'll say, oh, I'm not sure. Like, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll just let you, I'll just see what you're going to do. But I mm-hmm. know damn well what he'll do because I know his personality well. Yeah. And I think it's, um. It's uh it's a blessing curse. Mm-hmm. Can I say that? I think so. It's a blessing curse because yeah. I think the curse of of it is that it sometimes does interrupt my ability to find freedom. Mm. And it's a blessing because in some ways it is a it is a huge gift of freedom. For sure. Also. So yes. and it's a tool.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And tools are wonderful things, but let's not get attached to the tool. Let's remember that we're in a conversation with a higher power. And that yoga is the same. Let's not get too excited about Anusara yoga. Let's not get too excited about feng shui. Let's not get too excited about Western astrology. Let's not get too excited about our tools. Mm -hmm. Let's use our tools for our higher purpose. Mm -hmm. So I have to remember that always Mm -hmm. because tools are just tools. They're just a gateway and all of them should give you the same answer. If we are truly connected to truth, then any tool will reveal to you the, the answer that you need. So whether you're reading the i ching or you're looking at tarot cards or you're practicing feng shui mm-hmm. um there's a uh, there's one truth mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and imagine
1: there is an intellectual aspect where you just have to know the information mm-hmm. and then there's also a, a place where you're you're bringing in your intuition
2: absolutely right? it's an art science mm-hmm. and uh
1: how do you cultivate that intuition
2: mm-hmm. Yeah. And how do you trust it? Because sometimes, you know, we don't always know we're guessing. And, and so I think sometimes you have to ask yourself, do I know this is true? Mm -mm." And sometimes, you know, you have to say, "Mm, this is how I'm feeling Mm -hmm. and to recognize that feeling and truth are, Mm -hmm. are different. So Mm -hmm. you can be genuinely feeling something and that's a feeling Um, but the truth might not be the feeling. So Mm -hmm. I think having that discernment is important too. Mm -hmm. And, um, I do think spirituality in some ways is also, um, this art of feeling from your environment and responding to it. And I don't think necessarily that everyone has this intuitive capacity, I think that I do. I feel that I can feel and understand things simply through the process of knowing. So when I close my eyes and I meditate, I find wisdom there. I find inherent understanding from my own reflection. And I've began to notice that not everyone has that. And that's been really interesting for me because I thought everyone had that. I thought that when we all closed our eyes and when we started to meditate, that we all had natural insight that arise from that place, and that's not true. Hmm. We don't all have natural insight that arises through meditation. I don't think so. I think some of us are just sitting there patiently in a doctor's office waiting. Uh. Yeah.
1: <laughs> what if what if the practitioner goes through stages of their practice? Will they eventually arise to that place? Or is it really no. inherent in their in their life this time in their this lifetime where uh, no. some are?
2: And I think that's the mistake that a lot of religions of the world often make, where they say, "As soon as we show you Christianity, you will know the way." Mm. Well, not so. I mean, some people don't need spirituality, and they never will, and that's okay, mm. and they're all right, mm-hmm. and they still have a life and mm-hmm. they're still okay. And they exist in the world. Not everyone needs to be spiritual. Mm. In fact, I think spirituality is only useful to those of us who have tumultuous lives. To be perfectly honest, I think spirituality is something that we develop as a result of, um, the uncertainty that life presents us with. And we develop spirituality as a mm-hmm. result sort mm-hmm. of like that's sort of like my scientific perspective. It's like okay, like if life throws you around and kicks you around like a like a soccer ball enough times, then all of a sudden you develop spirituality. Because yeah. what else are you going to do? You mm-hmm. have to just trust. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> when it comes to spirituality, uh, I think for me and for a lot of people, uh, it's a way in which to connect with spirit or yes. source or mm-hmm. uh, a feeling that there's something more. Would you say that that uh, everybody has that longing, or no. or some people don't? have other ways of connecting to source or spirit or...
2: some people are not connected to source or spirit. They're, um, uh, they're here working on an economic equation or they're doing something else. Hmm. They're raising a litter of kittens. They're, uh, no, not all paths are spiritual. Hmm. And I think that, um, it's foolish to think that they would be. Hmm. Yeah, hmm. we're not all spiritual beings. Some of us are, hmm. but some people don't need spirituality. They go through life just fine without it. Yeah,
1: I never considered that. <laughs> that interesting. <laughs> yeah,
2: solve the world's problem. <laughs> <laughs> not everyone needs not everyone needs religion. Some mm-hmm. people do. Some people some people need guidance uh, as to their moral direction. Um, you know, people. Some people come across more moral dilemma than others, right? Some people are faced with moral dilemma on a daily basis, even Mm. where the right thing to do is not clear to them. Mm -hmm. And those people above anyone else, they need religion. They Mm -hmm. need spirituality. They need guidance as to what the noble path or what the noble course is. And in many ways, it's up to them to decide Mm -hmm. what the noble path will be because Mm -hmm. the whole world will see them as an example and that's their work.
1: Yeah. And it's clearly a part of your life and it's your work. Why has it been so important for you?
2: Um, I think for me, because I'm, um, I'm on the pendulum that's swinging the other way. I think my, uh, my parents' generation came out of a religious period where they were really rejecting religion because they were so indoctrinated and there was so much dogma and all those other things that come with orthodox religions. And I think that they really rejected it outright. And so the pendulum swung. And now I feel like I'm swinging back towards understanding that altruism and, um, goodness are really, uh, the path to, for me, they're really my path. Um, and I found that that path has been rewarding Mm -hmm. to take that path has been rewarding for me. And so I'm getting direct reward for my choices um, I don't think that's true for everyone. Mm. So,
1: when you say reward, well, can you be more specific?
2: Um, uh, I guess w- what I'm saying is that my choices to um, do noble deeds, to mm-hmm. be a good person, to help others, to be reflective of my own choices, to um, to honor the path to understand that there is something to being, uh, being good, I guess. Um, you know, even if I would, you know, think about some of the specific lessons for myself, like the Buddhist precept of not causing harm through sexual misconduct. It's one of my favorites because I think it's a, an important one because I do see, um, I do see people suffering harm through sexual misconduct and um, in my community particularly. And I think that, um, it's often overlooked that sometimes there's a, um, there is some harm that happens in relationship dynamics, Mm -hmm. um, because people are self-centered or because they're using mind altering substance or because they are just simply not caring for others, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so it brings you back to the golden rule of, uh, you know, doing unto others as you would want done unto you. And, uh, just making sure that, uh, We're not doing one another a disservice or doing harm inadvertently or purposefully. I think that, um, those things happen and that to acknowledge them and address them is important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: And I think if we can be skillful in those areas, it'd be very helpful on so many levels. Uh, I know just in relationship that, um, Things that happen within within relationships, there's a lot of karmic entanglements and a lot of uh, mm-hmm. emotional pain that is tied in with that. So, if there's ways in which we can navigate those realms more skillfully, I think uh, mm-hmm. there'd just be a lot more ease and freedom.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, like in respect to the word, the way you use the word karma, there, like, how do we burn our karma? You know, mm. how do we how do we do it? Well. I don't know. I think we have to create a balance between our own like drive for um uh personal needs and development and balance that with community needs and um yeah, but I think we can all agree that the qualities of generosity and kindness are very valuable in society. You know, I think we can all agree that um you know, there are certain things that we would we would like to see the world have, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. happiness and peace and mm-hmm. gentleness and courtesy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Th- these things are, these things are valuable to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah. I can definitely see that. In yeah. You yourself and also what you've created as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to r- bring it all together now in this one final question of uh, where do you see your your studio uh the vision for the studio or for your life path uh in the coming years
2: um i think that as i get uh into the next decade of my life i would be happy to support others um along their path of uh of service so I might, uh, work in mentorship. I think I'll continue to do the, uh, readings and consultations that I do in astrology and feng shui. I think those are really important in helping people understand themselves. I think I'll continue to mentor people to get to know themselves well and to adhere to a path of, uh, of, uh, good conduct and to, I think, cultivate in myself these superior qualities that bring that out in others, you know, um, I I'm probably going to continue to blend tea. I'm going to work on my herbal medicine practice. I'm going to be doing things that enhance the enhance the enjoyability of life, help mm-hmm. people be well so they can enjoy their lives to the fullest, to the best that they can. And I think to do that, I have to make sure that I have a strong practice and so that practice will support me to be able to serve in the ways that I I, I really am passionate about. Mm-hmm. And what that looks like. I'm not sure. I mean, it might look like teacher training. I'm not sure. Teacher training is a little bit of a dirty word to me because, um, I would like to see, I would like to see people practice more. Mm. Um, and I think that, you know, maybe in the future supporting others to walk this path that I've walked and enjoyed and, and lived and to help them see the benefit in doing so. Because I think sometimes we don't know that there's great benefit. Sometimes it's not immediately obvious. It's not until we get a little further down the road that we start to see the outcomes of our labors or the benefit of what we're doing in in life, and to sort of help people see that the journey is the the journey is the joy.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Is there any last things you'd like to share with the people that are listening?
2: Um, just that I think that. Um, It's really exciting for me to be able to, um, say that I've, uh, had a yoga studio for 10 years and I'd just like to encourage anybody who is considering it to take it on as a, as, um, as a practice. Mm -hmm. I think it's a great thing to run a business and to understand the financial workings and how those all integrate with our spiritual practice and I think to create a balance in our lives between, uh, what we're doing on our yoga mats and what we're doing with our intellect and what we're doing with our bank accounts and all those things wrapped up together is the experience of life. And that, um, I think that that's, uh, it's worthwhile mm-hmm. and it's worth doing. Mm-hmm. And so I guess just to anyone who's, uh, pursuing their passions and pursuing the things that they love to just encourage them to, uh, persevere because, There are points along the way where you just want to stop the bus and get off. (laughs) Um, But to persevere and to see it through uh, reveals so many more new things that you might not have been able to see from the starting point. Mm -hmm. Um, But that whole true beauty, and uh, it's worth it.
1: Great. Yeah. Great. Well, in our show notes, I will leave your... Uh, website union tea, yoga tea house so that people can come to your studio and yeah, experience it's it
2: unityyogaca andinca and unityherbals.ca <laughs> and uh, yeah there and unity retreats yes.
1: yeah i will include all of that so that you can uh, <laughs> check in to yeah. all of those a uh, lot of great offerings <laughs> and uh, it's been a pleasure yeah. i've learned so much and so thank you for being yeah, here
2: yeah thank you so much leo for your time it's yeah. been a, it's been a blessing thank you